Welcome to the Latin American Center, to what I believe is the last event of the Latin American Center um, in ever. Because I'm not going to the party, I forgot the party. The first academic event um, at the center, and of course it is in difficult times for some of you because it's exam time, so um, I guess you get one point. Those of you that have come with exam points, you get one point extra in one of the of three exams of yours. Of your <laughs> no, no, they had to leave the, na the numbers oh, okay. at the end of the, the term. Reflected in the exam, so. uh, yeah, in the strength of the exam. <laughs> actually, you did um, well in addition to the point coming because I think this um, is actually a very good way to finish the year. Um, we are to um, launch this book, um, The Memory of a State Terrorism in the Southern Con, um, which is a big pleasure, I think, for, for us at the Latin American Center and for Lee and I, because um, first, it's co-edited by Francesca Lessa, who just joined us at the Latin American Center a few months back. It's the first book, if I'm not yes. um, making a mistake, <laughs> of both of the editors, at least yes. um, you, which um, I still remember. I don't have as many as others, so I still remember <laughs> my first people. one, um, and it's actually... Um, always nice, and we ha and it's a very important topic for us, but also we hope in the Latin American Center for the years to come. So what we are going to do is to have short presentations from the two editors of the book, uh, Francesca Lessa and um, Vicent Drulliol, um, more or less, um, one at the Latin American Center, another an independent researcher, and then a discussion of the case of Chile by Alejandra Serpenteguiz at uh, my former um, employer, the Institute for the Study of the Americas. Uh, and then I think uh, Cecilia Sosa is also here, um, who is another of the uh, contributors to um, the book and, of course, um, can also participate in questions, answers, etc. So, uh, sorry, and finally, um, there will be a discussant um, who is um, Lee um, to my left, um, who is a professor here in Oxford at the Latin American Center and also in sociology. So I actually have very little to play. I know very little about the topics other than uh, congratulate you, um, encourage all of you to take one of these and um, buy the book. Uh, Palgrave is always rather expensive, but 50% helps a lot. Um, and introduce... Thank you, thank you, and um, we were also able to get Paul Grave to be very kind to ship a few extra copies for sale at Blackwell's here in Oxford, so if any of you cannot wait to get the book, you can actually go and get it at uh, Blackwell's in Broad Street, So, and that would save you the postage, by the way, so not a bad idea. Well, I just wanted to uh, start today by uh, thanking Diego and Lee very much for being so enthusiastic when I told them about the book and for making this uh, book launch possible. But I would also like to thank uh, Tim and everyone at the Latin American Center because they let us host the event here and they were very helpful in organizing it. So we are very thankful for this opportunity. 
so I'm just going to start by saying a bit about the background of the book. And the idea for this book emerged a couple of years ago when uh, Vincent, Alejandra, Cecilia and a few other people uh, participated at the 45th annual conference of the Society for Latin American Studies in Leeds in 2009. And after our panel on memory struggles in the post-dictatorial Southern Cone, we came up with this idea to have our papers uh, published as a book. So we then decided to invite a few more scholars from the United States, uh, Chile and Argentina to join and collaborate with this project. And so afterwards we presented the manuscript to Paul Grave and after a successful uh, review uh, the book began to take shape. And if any of you are working on these topics, you will know that in the past few years, the field of transitional justice and memory study has really um, had a burgeoning scholarship. And um, nonetheless, uh, we still believe that our book is making an original contribution in at least uh, three uh, respects. It's one of very few publications that have been written uh, specifically addressing the politics of memory in the countries of the, of the Southern Cone. Secondly, it compiles innovative perspectives by both well-established but also emerging scholars on these topics. And finally, because all of our contributors came from different academic backgrounds, we believe that the book can appeal to a number of different audiences from transitional justice to Latin American studies, human rights, uh, politics, and sociology. Overall, this volume explores the contested aspects, realms, and meanings, as well as the challenges associated with the struggles relating to the construction and preservation of memory of state terrorism in the Southern Cone. The book tries to capture the experiences and practices of memory, but also reflecting on memory's dynamic and multifaceted character. And the book also tries to illuminate the richness and complexities of this politics of memory. And in the book, we use this image of a memory mosaic to account for the politics of memory. And we sort of see each essay in the book as a piece of this mosaic providing us with a new perspective that may be interesting and challenging, but also provocative and sometimes disturbing. And we believe that we need to look at each of these pieces of the mosaic if we want to really unpack the complexities of the politics of memory in this region. And also many people have asked us about the book cover, so I think it's quite fitting to say um, a couple of words about that <laughs> to try to explain. And unfortunately, we haven't been very lucky with our PowerPoint today, but hopefully you can see it uh, from there. And there's a few copies of the book going around. Um, this is actually an artistic creation that we were lucky enough that the uh, artist decided to uh, donate it to us for the uh, purpose of our book cover. And it's called, it's an Italian artist and his uh, creation is called Senza Titolo, Untitled. And it embodies a conceptual opposition. We picked this image because we believe that this image doesn't go unnoticed, but actually it's very provocative for the readers, making them wonder and making them actually think about the possible meanings of this image. We see the opposition between the fan as the, and the heater 
as recalling the tensions and disagreements relating to the past in this region. And these are uh, conflicts and antagonisms that continuously exist in the present, in the political and cultural present of these societies. And also, part of the reason behind choosing this image was because we tried to move beyond traditional images that have been associated with these topics, such as images, for example, the photos of this disappear, not because we didn't like them, but because we thought we had seen so many covers looking like that. So we decided to pick this cover because, like the whole volume, we were trying to open up a new space for discussion and debate within a literature that we felt was in need of new voices and new perspectives. Um, the book uh, begins with a brief historical background on the origins of the military regimes and the characteristics of the human rights violations in Argentina, Chile and Uruguay. And although these military regimes had different methods of the repression, nonetheless, in all the three cases, the level of violence that we see was unprecedented and left deep scars within each of these three societies. In particular, the crime of enforced disappearances in negating the life and death of thousands of individuals were partic was particularly traumatizing for the affected families, but also for the society as a whole. Then the introduction accounts for policies of transitional justice in these three regions and notes in particular how since the mid-1990s the southern cone has witnessed an explosion of memory with attempts to open up archives relating to uh, the dictatorships but also intents to build memorials and museums. So starting from the mid to late 1990s, we see how the past returns to be a topic of discussion in the media and in the political agendas of Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. And it also became the subject of artistic, cultural, literary, and movie productions. And in parallel to this process, there has also been a rapid increase in academic research into these matters and the study of the recent past and social memory has gained academic legitimacy. The chapters in the book examine a vast array of public and private memories of the dictatorships, looking at both official discourses of memory, but also alternative practices and narratives. Overall, the essays in this collection try to um, underline how there is no single and univocal account of memory, but rather how in this society we see um, the coexistence of various memories, and also the role played by art, architecture, literature, and culture in constructing the memory of the recent past. And finally, this volume uh, tries to foreground an understanding of memory as processes showing their changes and continuities over time. So we really hope that the main contribution that this volume is trying to make to the literature is to really to open up the scope of analysis and discussion and particularly transcend the traditional dichotomy between memories coming from the state and those coming from civil society. So I'm briefly, in the few minutes uh, that I have, uh, going to talk about the chapters on Uruguay, and then Alejandra and Vincent are going to talk about Chile and Argentina, as Diego was saying. So the chapter by Gabriela Fried, entitled Private Transmission of Traumatic Memories of the Disappeared, 
in the context of transitional politics of oblivion in Uruguay, pedagogies of horror among Uruguayan families, focuses on post-transition Uruguay and analyzes how the traumatic experiences of state terrorism were transmitted within families that were directly affected by a disappearance of one of their members. And she looks at the case of various families within a larger context of government politics of silence, of denial and impunity relating to the crimes committed by the Uruguayan dictatorship. Gabriela focuses on intergenerational family transmission and she, uh, lay, she talks about these pedagogies of horror <coughs> and these follow two main uh, patterns of transmission. Narrative urges, a need or compulsion by adults to tell the children about disappearances. Or second, softening or silencing narratives edited or softened versions of the event and even partial or total silence. And finally, she also examines children's inquiries to see how children themselves try to make sense of the events that were happening around them. Gabriela argues that these pedagogies of horror emerge as a response to the dilemmas faced by parents and grandparents as a consequence of political repression whether to share the burden of knowledge and silence and how to do so. How could adults explain to children the absence or disappearance of a loved one that adults themselves couldn't make sense of? Parents had to balance conflicting demands, sheltering their children's innocence, but also alerting them to the dangerous reality that could invade their families and their homes. Uh, Gabriela then looks in particular at the story of three families that she interviewed in Uruguay and how the specific disappearance of a mother or a father was uh, transmitted with, to the younger members of each family. So Gabriela concludes by arguing that there were generational differences in these uh, transmission patterns. So the older generations, grandparents and grandmothers in particular, that were not members of political or revolutionary groups, they tended to soften or silence the stories of disappearances to protect the children under their care. On the other hand, surviving parents that were activists tended to politically discuss the reality of disappearances and political repression much more openly, sometimes overexposing children to narratives of fear, danger and violence. Finally, children themselves tried to make sense of the events that were happening, but they did so on their own and they didn't, of, uh, they didn't often ask questions to the adults in their families. The members of these second generations felt and still feel a legacy of unfinished business. And far from forgetting or healing, they are also struggling with the legacies of the recent past. So the Uruguayan policies of silence and denial didn't provide any healing and rather blocked the community's ability to achieve a degree of closure and social reconciliation. The second chapter on Uruguay, entitled No hay que tener los ojos en la nuca, The Memory of Violence in Uruguay, adopts a more macro-level approach, looking at questions of memory at the level of the state, civil society, and the armed forces. 
And in the chapter, I argue that Uruguay was the most successful country in the Southern Cone region in limiting the debate over the human rights abuses that were committed during the dictatorship. In fact, until the late 1990s, we have several democratic governments that successfully restrict the discussion of the human rights crimes to the confined sphere of human rights activism and the victims that were directly affected. Nonetheless, this government's strategy of silence was short-lived because starting from the mid-1990s, we see how the human rights questions begin to resurface, even within such a tight uh, context of silence and impunity. Since 1985, the time of the democratic transition in Uruguay, the landscape of memory has been characterized by several tensions. And in particular, there has been an antagonism and a tension between a majority of Uruguayans that were willing to forget the legacy of terror and a wounded minority that was unable to do so. And although within society there exists a shared uh, social consensus that repudiates the dictatorship and authoritarianism, Nonetheless, memory in Uruguay remains scattered and fragmented across society, and we see various memories manifesting themselves and often changing over time at the social, cultural, and political levels. Since the mid-1990s, as I was saying, the, questions, uh, the question of the past begins uh, to return to Uruguay in spite of these government policies of silence. In the chapter, I look at three narratives and the way they evolved over the past 30 years. So we have the government narrative that for many decades presented the time of the dictatorship as a situation of war, in which two demons, the military and the guerrillas, were fighting each other while society was caught in between and was completely alien to the violence. The government used for many years the slogan of not having eyes at the back of the head, calling society to forget about the divisions of the past and to look instead to the future. And this policy continued unchanged until 2000, when we see the first official recognition that, state, that the state was responsible for human rights violations. Nonetheless, this image of a war between Uruguayan brothers remains uh, quite powerful. The Uruguayan armed forces shared the regional narrative of salvation, according to which they had saved the country from the threats of communism and subversion. In this perspective, uh, human rights crimes were justified and rationalized as excesses, unavoidable consequences in an unconventional war against an unknown enemy of subversion. And finally, human rights activists depicted the repression and military rule as a time of disruption and family, when the political violence from the state upset family relations forever and produced a world of fear. In particular, disappearances were events impossible to make sense of, for defined traditional categories of life and death. And finally, in the chapter, I also look at some specific dates, uh, places, and human groups that have been able to uh, activate and trigger deba debates over memory in Uruguay. So, for example, the transformation of the Punta Carreta prison into a shopping center in the early 1990s 
can be taken to symbolize the government politics of oblivion and national amnesia. On the other hand, since 1996, the March of Silence has become a yearly event in which all the victims of state terrorism are remembered. And likewise, the memorial to disappeared detainees has since 2001 perpetuated the, remember, the remembrance of the victims through a physical reminder in the urban landscape of Montevideo. And finally, some pictures. Um, and finally, uh, the 1989 and 2009 votes on the amnesty law and the associated social mobilization have forced an often unwilling society to face up to the questions and legacies of its uncomfortable past. So now I'm going to pass on to Alejandra, who's going to talk to us about the chapters on Chile. Thank you. Um, Sorry. Sorry. That was I'd like to start by thanking Francesca and Vincent for inviting me to speak today on behalf of all the Chilean chapters in the book, and also for giving me the opportunity to take part in the publication in the first place as a PhD student. It's my first... Um, you know, chapter, so it's a very, very special moment for me and it's been a tremendously rewarding process to contribute to and also privileged to appear alongside all the other authors in the book. In the short time I have, I'm going to aim to address the main impulses present in each of the Chilean chapters, Michael Lazadas, Elizabeth Lidas and my own, and then to talk about the common thread that I think links them all and leads to my own reflections on second-generation post-memory. In Chapter 4, Michael Lazada discusses the book Puño y Letra by the Chilean author Diamela Eltid, published in 2005, in which she documents her witnessing of the trial of Jorge Arancibia Clavel, a Dina civilian operative of Plan Condor during the dictatorship being convicted for his involvement in organising the 1974 car bombing in Buenos Aires that killed Pinochet's predecessor, General Carlos Prats, and his wife. Eltit does not set out to document the facts about the trial, although she does exhaustively take note of the judicial language that develops during this process. Instead, Lazada points out that Eltit is attempting to reveal the limits of the truth, present in the tension between the production of a specific discourse to establish facts in order to reach a verdict and what he calls the remainders of this process. The first remainder being the official version of the truth that is constructed by the judicial process. The second, the victims of state terrorism's pain that can only be partially alleviated in the aftermath of the trial. And thirdly, an impunity that implies that post-dictatorial justice in Chile, despite increasing trials in recent years, has been limited. The trial that Eltit herself is witnessing is a highly profile case, but other less well-known cases are still to be brought to justice. Eltit spends the majority of her case notes writing about the appearance in the trial of the witness Hugo Zambetti whose theatrical performance in court continually annoys the prosecution with his exaggerated se sense of self-importance and his inability to answer questions directly. This obsession with detailing Zambetti's oral testimony as an ordinary citizen implicated with a known repressor 
indicates for Lazada Eltit's brilliant incitation, and I quote, the need for a society-wide examination of a conscience whereby justice would imply an honest reckoning with the past, not just for those involved, but for all Chileans, for all of us. Lazara notes that in Puño y Letra, Eltit indicates her continuing identification as a Chilean body marked by violence. The trial enables her to identify the year 1974 as a key moment when all Chileans were marked by the violence of state terrorism, and therefore the presence of the ambiguous figure of the ordinary citizen represented by Sambetti, caught up in the chaos, allows us to question other subjectivities beyond the victims and the perpetrators. Lasada evokes other modes of radical justice, justice that moves beyond the law courts and engages the whole of civil society. For Eltid, as for Lazara, the question of who are the anonymous bodies whose experiences of state terrorism we still know little about are, and I quote, the underlings and common citizens whose existence in different ways was sculpted and permanently altered by the experience of living in a state of exception. This state of exception, as we can see in Elizabeth Lira's key contribution in Chapter 5, is not simply, as she makes clear, identifiable during the period of the military coup between 1973 and 1990, but one of many periods of Chile's history with an unfolding legacy of political repression. <coughs> Lira charts Chile's trajectory as a divided society, with deep authoritarian enclaves entrenched in a traditional respect for the rule of law that were cemented in the dictatorship and continued into the post-dictatorial period. As she states in her own words, a political culture has been built in which authoritarian expressions are perceived as a guarantee of order and public security. Some authoritarian expressions that Lira notes show little change today. Chile's long traumatic memory for Lira stems from the country's various periods of state repression and terrorism. Memories of massacres, tragedies and political turmoil contained within the struggle and resistance engaged by ordinary people belonging to workers, women's and peasants movements, human rights organisations, civil society groups, professional associations and political parties. For Lira, the activist memory of all these groups is a traumatic memory because, as she states, those who remember can identify with others' narratives and with the feelings these evoke, perceiving this history as belonging to them. The diversity of narratives builds communities of memory about a shared past. It is precisely this preoccupation with the continuation of this memory that my own chapter seeks to establish. The transference of the memory of the victims of state terrorism that have dominated the landscape of memory in the Southern Cone onto subsequent generations that will remember into the future. For myself, the traumatic memory that both Lazara and Lira describe in their chapters leaves traces behind for the second generation in particular. Traces that the process of diaspora awakens, a sense of responsibility to remember the past, without being consumed by it, by it, what Marian Hirsch has termed as post-memory. In my contribution to this chapter, I believe I would like to encourage in our investigations concerning the memory of Chile's past, further pressing questions that must be attended to. I want to ask, what has happened to those families of exiles who left Chile and never returned? 
How does the second generation engage with the stories of their parents' past whilst coming to terms with their own lives? How does Chile's traumatic history translate into second generation subjectivities as the receivers of this traumatic memory? As Eva Hoffman has stated in relation to the Holocaust and her own experience as a second generation child of survivors, for me it, would, it was emigration itself that was the seismic quake, occluding the delayed reverberations from the greater cataclysm. Emigration, after all, happened to me. The losses it brought me were things that I had actually known. It is precisely this link between traumatic memory and diasporic post-memory for the second generation that I wish to highlight. For example, in my own research with second generation Chileans and Argentinians in the UK, and in reference to the Chilean community, the 1998 arrest of Pinochet in London was a key moment when the landscape of memory imploded onto the diasporic scene. It ignited in many of the second generation subjects that I interviewed a need to come, to f a need to come face to face with their parents' militancy in Chile, with their subsequent exile and with the reasons why they came to the UK. And also, I've just thought, listening to your introduction, the idea of your parents be called subversives, what does that mean? For myself, La Sara and Lyra, the official accounts of Chile's traumatic past must be accompanied by those memories that belong to wider societal concerns to engage with that past. And memories that, although primarily, primarily rooted in deeply private familial spaces, also speak of the possibility to build more inclusive memory communities, to include new subjectivities that contain within themselves a collective endeavour to never forget. Thank you. Um, I'm going to finish by presenting uh, the three chapters about Argentina and very briefly I'm going to try to draw some conclusions from the book and uh, all the chapters. Uh, but first of all I want to thank um, uh, Francesca. We're all here uh, today thanks to her. She organized everything so we have to thank her for that. Uh, thanks very much also to the Latin American Center, everyone who uh, helped her very much in organizing this book launch. And I also want to thank uh, Professor Payne for being here today and preparing uh, such detailed comments. Uh, Wait till you hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the book and the chapters and for being the discussant for uh, this book lounge. Um, so I'm going to start with chapter one, which is uh, mine actually. So just, um, I mean, I don't remember which was the order of the chapters, but anyway, um, <laughs> I'm going to start with this chapter. Um, all right, so this chapter is. Um, pretty simply uh, a sort of ethnographic analysis of uh, uh, various micro-commemorative practices in um, uh, post-authoritarian Argentina. So instead of focusing on um, high-profile projects such as ESMA or um, uh, the Parque de la Memoria, uh, the idea was to focus on uh, local, uh, very um, uh, small-scale projects such as, for instance, uh, the recovery of uh, individual um, centers of detention and uh, torture during the Nazi dictatorship, and uh, there are more than 50 uh, across um, Buenos Aires uh, and many more across Argentina. And one of the objectives of uh, the families of the relatives uh, of the disappeared is <coughs> to recover these sites and transform them into uh, sites of memory. Uh, and I was also interested in other kind of uh, practices and activities such as 
uh, in particular the laying of uh, memorial plates uh, in uh, the neighborhoods of um, uh, the Argentine capital, um, Las Valdosas. Um, they seem to be uh, practices and um, that don't seem so important compared to high-profile projects such as um, ESMA, for instance. Uh, there was a lot of media attention and uh, scholarly attention uh, about this project, obviously, for obvious reasons. And, um, but I think it was also interesting to uh, focus on these sort of small-scale projects uh, to complement uh, the literature on these sites. So basically it's uh, ethnographic analysis uh, of these practices and sites uh, because what is important for the people involved in this project is not so much uh, the end product, that is to say the site itself, how will um, uh, uh, the paving plaque look like for instance, uh, how will, um, uh, what will be exactly the design uh, of the former center of detention and torture, but actually the activity that is undertaken to recover these sites and construct these sites. Uh, so the emphasis on the in the chapter is really about placemaking uh, rather than uh, the place uh, themselves. Um, so in fact, I was interested simply in uh, the meanings, uh, personal, social, uh, cultural, political, um, that uh, the actors involved in this project uh, give to um, uh, these activities and the end product itself. Um, and I was also interested in uh, a very sharp contrast which um, well, pretty simply, um, I heard every time I talked to someone about these projects, uh, the comparison between uh, these micro sites and practices and uh, the opposition and sometimes very often actually the rejection of uh, monumental projects uh, such as uh, the Parque de la Memoria uh, and ESMA. So the idea obviously is not to judge the extent to which uh, this rejection and the reasons why they are rejected are valid or not. The idea is simply to highlight the contrast <coughs> to, to make sense of how uh, the actors make sense of these micro practices and uh, the activity of recovering these sites. Um, so in other words, it's um, um, simply a sort of um, interpretive analysis uh, of a range of practices. The idea simply is that um, a concept of memory underlies these activities, these projects, uh, these activities related to placemaking. Um, and the idea is to try to identify this concept of memory underlying these practices and show basically the complexities and the different levels and layers uh, that we have uh, to make sense of uh, a big idea such as memory and remembering. Um, obviously in this project the idea is mm, uh, to go largely goes beyond uh, um, the preservation and the transmission or, of factual or normative knowledge. Um, and in particular, I was uh, extremely interested in one of the aspects in the recovery of the former centers of detention and torture, um, which is the importance given uh, to the work of collecting information in the neighborhoods, uh, speaking to people uh, and trying to make them speak in the first place. Uh, um, a lot of actors uh, highlighted, emphasized that this work was actually fighting the legacy of fear uh, that was, uh, well, that characterized the uh, Argentine dictatorship. And um, so for them, uh, the activity of recovering a place or creating Navalosa, uh, simply the idea was to fight this project. And this was much more important than um, uh, the end product itself. Um, and I thought this aspect was really interesting. So the analysis also shows uh, how such projects, such as in particular uh, planting a tree in memory of the disappeared, 
uh, in neighborhoods uh, in the Argentine capital uh, is something which for the actors involved in this project and uh, the discipline themselves has uh, a very powerful meaning and especially this political dimension uh, which is about fighting this legacy of fear. Um, so I thought it was um, really a, a very interesting uh, case studies, even though uh, at first glance maybe we don't think they might be so interesting, but they have something to say about um, uh, memory remembering, uh, what their aims are, uh, how they work, what they seek to achieve, and um, this, sort of, uh, this sort of things. So the analysis in the chapter simply highlights what is political about these micro uh, community practices, uh, even when they seem insignificant. And the conclusion, maybe, um, that's something I insist a lot on uh, in the chapter, is try to, to warn against um, framing um, this project as a question of resistance, uh, resisting official projects and monumental projects. Um, it's not because you have something which is different and sometimes in opposition to monumental project that it's naturally uh, something about resistance. And I think it's one to warn against this temptation, especially in memory studies, where uh, there is a tendency to assume that memory is resistance uh, very often. Um, but I think that ethnographic analysis um, tends to produce a much more complex and nuanced view of this uh, sort of uh, uh, general picture. Um, so um, warning against uh, this equation and uh, other dichotomies that we have in memory studies uh, sometimes uh, not, so not just reducing memory as uh, a question of resistance uh, versus domination, but also uh, reducing pretty much the same logic to memory against forgetting, uh, which I don't think is really uh, uh, accurate most of the time about these memories, uh, because we have to take them into account, uh, especially if we seek to provide a general picture of memory struggles. Uh, otherwise, we only have a sort of book about memory struggles of the relatives that disappeared. Um, so I think it's important uh, to have a chapter about that. And so we don't have a lot of discussions uh, about this, uh, this topic. Uh, very often they are condemned rather than genuinely analyzed uh, when they're talked about in the first place. Um, so again, that's why I think uh, it's a very good chapter. It's an important contribution. Uh, and I think it's a really important uh, piece of the mosaic of, uh, of the book. So um, uh, the second chapter analyzes how some sections uh, linked to the armed forces uh, in democracy uh, appropriate and recycle uh, the discourse of the human rights movement uh, to claim a legitimate place in the debates about the past and uh, at the same time how uh, demanding memory, truth and justice for uh, the people killed by what they still call subversives come from uh, communism. Um, so um, the chapter is um, uh, concentrates on this uh, strategy of recycling, uh, as it were, uh, the discourse of the human rights movement, uh, the families of the people killed by the subversion, as they call it, um, couldn't also demand memory, truth and justice. Now, uh, obviously there is a very big difference, and that's uh, that uh, this discourse uh, actually depoliticizes de or tends to depoliticize uh, the past, obviously, uh, for obvious reasons. And uh, it is strategic in the sense that it emphasizes sort of uh, what we may call universal or natural aspects, uh, like, for instance, uh, the suffering uh, of parents, for instance, uh, the work of mourning, 
which is something that you can claim is universal and implicitly that's the claim you have uh, in these movements and uh, their demands. Um, so the demand for memory, truth and justice, uh, Valentina analyzes uh, what these groups call complete memory, complete truth and complete justice. Um, which is obviously a, a way of uh, a different way of um, uh, well reframing uh, the theory of the two demons, uh, as um, can be expected, and as I said a bit earlier. Um, so uh, the idea is try to trying to make it more socially acceptable and gain a legitimate place in the debate about memory in Argentina, uh, while at the same time. Uh, keeping insisting on the same interpretation of the past and especially the role that uh, the armed forces played in saving Argentina uh, from communism. Um, um, so that's, uh, the chapter is about this discourse. It's a very detailed analysis of this discourse. It's very interesting. Uh, maybe a wider question which is raised by um, uh, this chapter is uh, the whole question of uh, um, the institutional reform of the armed forces. Uh, which is something that can be related um, to this uh, chapter, even though it's not addressed uh, in this chapter. Um, and especially why uh, such discourses still, still seem to be so powerful uh, within the armed forces, whereas in other countries it's, it's been slightly different. Um, okay, so that's all for uh, chapter two. Chapter three uh, is also a very, uh, very important contribution uh, about a very important issue, which is uh, the identity and the legitimacy of the uh, voices and the groups that claim to speak about the repressive past and its implication uh, for the present, and also uh, the people claim, who claim to speak uh, in the name of memory uh, in the present. So the question is about who does memory belong to, um, who constructed and defined its meaning and objectives, and who is claimed to remember and speak in uh, the name of the past. Um, so the chapter emphasizes how victims were defined uh, and still define themselves as uh, those directly affected by rep the repression. And so the discussion about especially how the trials were actually instrumental in defining victims in this way. So uh, the image of a wounded family of a community of blood has uh, imposed itself in Argentina. Uh, and so the chapter, uh, and I quote, uh, argues that the language of the family has turned into a trap that encapsulates and restricts the possibilities of understanding the transmission of memory beyond bloodline inscriptions. Uh, so I think that's a very important issue and it's a potentially controversial topic. So obviously it's not about denying the suffering of these people, but obviously trying to challenge uh, what is implicitly said to be natural given or necessary um, about this experience. And uh, especially the implications uh, that uh, um, uh, this meaning given to this uh, experience have. Um, so the chapter clearly reflects on these questions and the monopoly of the uh, suffering and memory claimed by the relatives of the disadvantaged. Again, I think it's an urgent uh, question. Um, so the chapter proposes a queer reading uh, to challenge the essentialism of uh, biological ties as the basis for the construction and transmission of memory. Uh, so obviously. Uh, queer reading in the sense of the, norm the normativity and uh, deriving from this essentialism. Um, uh, so that's um, uh, Cecilia's framework in this chapter. And uh, she analyzes uh, um, the Madres and um, the film Los Rubios in order to show how already this sort of discourse uh, about this essentialism sort of tends to undermine itself, deconstruct itself 
through their very practices, and that's all the ways of uh, imagining um, uh, ties to transmit and construct memory in our uh, are already there in, uh, in these movements. To conclude very briefly, uh, general conclusion about the book. Um, um, I mean, I think the book, as you emphasize already, is uh, offers uh, new areas of research, new theories, new methodologies, um, and very important objects and realms, for instance. I think Gabriel's chapter, for instance, uh, seems to be something which is not that important, it's not high uh, politics, it's not something very visible, but still, I think, uh, a lot of what we tend to call uh, the politics of memory is actually played out there. Uh, so I think it's a very important contribution. Uh, the book in general asks uh, and questions, asks questions um, uh, the very term of politics of uh, memory uh, that we tend to use very often uh, in the literature, uh, and I think we use it a lot in the book as well. Um, what is it that we analyze that we should analyze, and how can we go beyond uh, traditional objects such as, uh, well, some of the stuff I do in my chapter, for instance, uh, uh, science of memory. And so that's why I think a chapter like Gabriella's is, uh, is very important. And uh, to finish on that, maybe how to go beyond um, uh, uh, a little bit what we have in the book. I think some chapters are interesting in that they tend to shift from an analysis of the politics of memory uh, to the ethics uh, of memory. And I think that's an important array of research. Uh, so we have Cecilia's chapter in particular. We have some reflections in the afterword, and we have Michael's chapter as well. Uh, and so we have to we tend to assume uh, that memory is resistance, and we tend to s assume that memory is good, except when actually, well, the armed forces uh, talk about the past. Uh, but this is not really ethical discussion about uh, memory struggles. Um, so I think the good thing about the book is that, and it's not really explicit, um, explicitly emphasized in uh, the introduction, is that, um, well, we try to analyze and raise these issues. Uh, it's not to say that the politics of memory is irrelevant or that we should shift and abandon uh, the politics of memory, uh, but sometimes, and in my opinion at least, uh, discussion about the ethics of memory uh, is, uh, is missing. Um, so I think that I'm glad it's a contribution to some, uh, of some of the chapters uh, to start addressing these questions. Thank you. Lee. Okay. Uh, I mean, I really recommend this book. I don't know what they're—I don't know what they're uh, charging for this book. How much is I it? I think at the Black Rose is twenty-seven fifty. Okay, so not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't just recommend it because it was a nice break from reading scripts and theses and dissertations, etc. It really—it uh, was really a great opportunity to read it, and I think both um, Vincent and Francesca have pointed out. Uh, some of the strengths in terms of, I mean, like each chapter is strong. Um, that's rare in an edited collection, that each chapter is strong and each chapter has something new to say. Um, so in a field that is increasingly growing, as Francesca said, and specifically about these countries, Uruguay maybe less so, but Argentina and Chile where memory politics has been written about a lot, to be able to say something new is great. And so I applaud you on that. But um, now I'm going to, you know, there is this expression about not resting on your laurels. I've been looking around for those laurels to, to find out how I can rest on them. But um, you can't rest on your laurels, so what I would like to suggest to you is where you go from here. And it actually picks up on the, the points that Vincent ended on. Um, I think that the book makes a much stronger contribution in theoretical terms 
than is obvious from the intro or the conclusion or even the individual chapters. That it really is building a, kind of a new theoretical framework for looking at the politics of memory. So I wanted to suggest what that framework is or how it's emerging from the book and some of the tensions among the chapters around that framework. And so in this, I'm giving something to those of you who are doing um, exams, maybe a framework that you can use in your exams on uh, if you answer questions on transitional justice or memory or anything like that. Okay. That's the, that's the bonus. That's the bonus point. <laughs> okay, so I, what I, I wrote a very long thing. I must have been uh, out of my mind to think that I could get through it in 10 minutes. So I've tried to shorten it up a little bit, but Diego may still have to cut me off at some point. So uh, I hope it will be coherent. There are, I, I counted something like 10 different aspects of this politics of memory that comes through in the book, but I'm going to only talk about seven or maybe less if, I, if the hook comes out and I'm pulled away. Um, the first one is, is the relationship of memory and the politics of memory and institutional politics. And, and here's where some of the tensions come out in the, in the uh, chapters. For some of the authors, memory and memory politics fill a void when institutions are not doing their job, right? particularly institutions of accountability. And all of the authors talk about that early phase of the transition, you know, in the legacy of the self-amnesties by the military in which institutions are not holding perpetrators accountable and memory plays an important role. Right? So it's filling a void. But in some of the um, chapters, and particularly in Francesca's chapter on Uruguay, uh, it, it also looks at memory and, and memory politics as contesting uh, that effort to block, well, challenging the blocks to accountability. Right? Um, institutional blocks like the military, like the executives that she goes into great detail, uh, wonderful detail about in the Uruguayan case, that memory politics plays a role when when institutional politics is blocking any form of accountability. Also filling a void, but a different sort of void, or a different process. And But Lazara has perhaps the most um, uh, provocative, I guess I would say, view of the relationship of memory to, um, to institutional politics. He, um, he says that, that justice should not be, quote unquote, relegated to the courts. So in his view, memory is actually uh, not just complementary, not just filling a gap, not just a catalyst, but it actually is what he calls radical justice. It is transformative in that sense. So I don't know if the authors um, or if the authors here today want to talk about some of these tensions, whether you did talk about it or whether you can talk here a little bit about those tensions between the role of this politics of memory and its relationship to institutional politics. Um, the second aspect of this uh, politics of memory is memory as political action. You know, and I think the cover sort of speaks to that a little bit, you know, the fanning the flames, um, heating things up, bringing into the light, you know, it's a sort of politics in, um, politics in action. And Vincent's chapter says, uh, he, he, I will quote him, remembering becomes a political activity. So memory is actually doing politics in pretty much all of the chapters in the book. Um, it's making these uh, past injustices visible 
to demand justice in the present and justice uh, for the future. And so each chapter has this notion of memory as doing politics in some form. Um, but there are tensions over that way of doing politics. Sometimes it's a tension of aesthetics, right? I mean, in Vincent's comments now, it's like we're not doing monumental forms of memory or you know grand projects. It's the micro projects that his chapter focuses on. But even then, do we know if these micro politics are doing politics or if they're just markers? Uh, and it reminds me of this often quoted um, statement by the Austrian writer Musel in 1927 uh, that there is nothing more invisible than a monument. Is that true only for the big monuments or is it also true for the baldosas and the more fol folkloric uh, types of monuments? There is a great piece by Ua Tugat where he's walking through um, the, the literary critic from Uruguay is walking through the uh, the city of Montevideo, and with his daughter, a teenager, and you know every plaza has their man on horseback, you know, and he and they're reflecting on, you know, no one knows who these people are, no one knows what they did. Right? Again, the invisibility of monuments. But is that really what we may be thinking about in the Valdosas and other forms of even micro projects? Is there any guarantee? against these micro-projects also becoming uh, invisible and therefore maybe not doing politics. Uh, where, do they, where are the limits of doing politics through uh, memory projects, micro or monumental? The third aspect um, is memory is political cleavage. Um, one of these great political science terms <laughs> of cleavage. And I think there are lots of cleavages in this, or schisms we might call them, in the book. And they're, they're very interesting. Some of them are obvious ones, you know, the victim-perpetrator uh, cleavage, but dealt with in very interesting ways. Um, as uh, Vincent Point uh, talked about, Salvi's uh, chapter really looks at a subversive use of memory by the, uh, you know, the former perpetrators using the same language, appropriating the language, using the same uh, acts, um, claiming the same thing, acts of terrorism, not state terrorism, but now terrorism on the left, as uh, as their perpetrators, as the the those who victimized them. Um, so it's a kind of interesting take on that victim victim perpetrator uh, schism and the struggle over memory. There's also the salvation myth um, uh, versus the freedom struggle, the resistance struggle, um, uh, memory. Uh, the, the book also goes into some of the tensions that you could call victims against victims. The, the Asociación de las Madres en la Línea Fundadora um, but it doesn't go so much into the tensions between hijos, you know, the hijos uh, mm. schism as well. Uh, it does, I think, um, uh, Cecilia's chapter on Los Rubios is, is very interesting, especially in, I mean, I, the whole chapter is interesting, but the afterward was quite <coughs> fascinating where she brought in the case of Ernestina Herrera de Noble and the, the struggle over the children her children and their, um, who is the, the head of Clarín, um, and her adopted children who were born in 76, mm -hmm. 77, uh, and who, who were their parents, <coughs> right? How did she 
um, how did she adopt, happen to adopt these children? Um, and really using that in a way that I would say is talking about a schism between um, bloodlines or DNA, but also what are families? What are families? And the challenges of the children using Her parents are played by Playmobil figures, toys. Um, and they, when they go back to the neighborhood, the, the title of the film is uh, because the neighbors say, we can't really remember anything about the family, but we remember that they were blonde, which they're not. Right? So they were, los rubios are like foreign, kind of exotic, probably well-educated, upper-middle-class, living in a working-class neighborhood. Um, her family were these uh, rubios. So at one point in the film, they put on blonde wigs. And so it's sort of, as, as uh, Cecilia calls it, frivolous, creative, playful, but it's definitely um, creating a schism over how do you remember the past in this sort of sacred sacred memory and the profane. But is, it, is memory playful, you know? Or is it mourning and melancholy, which is some, some of the themes that are picked up in the book? Uh, and what are the cleavages around how you remember? Um, I think Alejandra's chapter on exiles and memory and how that might be different from nationals' memory is another sort of schism that, that comes out. And Vincent didn't mention this in his presentation, but he, he makes some reference to schisms between rural, Huhui, Nuken, and, uh, and memory in Buenos Aires, so that there's also this you know, urban, urban rural memory. Um, it struck me that the, the chapters are sort of um, hinting at a kind of memory gatekeeper. And the memory gatekeeper is, in a sense, saying who is allowed to remember, um, what is remembered, and how to remember. This is where Gabriela's, uh, Gabriela's chapter on the pedagogies of horror come in, too, how, how to remember. Um, and so I wondered if, if that's a part of this tension over making, trying to hold this thing together hold this unity, the solidarity, the sort of positive political things that come out of memory, um, is, uh, it means that you have to have a gatekeeper to say what's allowable, what's appropriate um, in, in, in memory politics. Um, very quickly, I have uh, a notion of, uh, I think there's a notion in there about memory as a political power resource, um, but I'm not sure it is. Um, and especially when you think about Salvi's uh, chapter and maybe also the afterward in, in Cecilia's chapter about how it can be, memory politics can be um, subverted and used um, perhaps cynically um, for other purposes. Um, and, and also because of the fragmentation that, uh, that I just talked about in terms of the, the schisms that have uh, and fragmentation in the, in the memory um, camp. There's a temporal dimension of memory that's a tension, I think, in the book. Um, there's, there is a, at least a wish, I think, on the part of the authors that memory is not just about the past, but that it has a presentness. It has a future, um, and that's where the politics come into this memory project. Uh, that it's not just individuals remembering the past or remembering losses, but it's it's thinking about a politics for the present, a politics for the future. Um, and yet, 
Francesca's title is really about the danger of avoiding looking backwards, right? I mean, the notion of of uh, not having eyes behind in, in the back of your neck is uh, a fear that if you don't look back, it, the past will be erased. So there, there's definitely a kind of call, I think, in that chapter to to make it still about the past and not erasing uh, erasing that memory, that memory about past repression. Lira, uh, Elizabeth Lira's chapter talks about um, continuity, and this is her work with Brian Loveman um, in other, uh, uh, much longer, I think it's like a three-part, uh, three-part about continuity of impunity in, in Chile. Um, and so she's arguing about, about a past that's not limited to the repressive era and going beyond, going deeper into the past and looking at cultures of impunity, patterns of impunity that keep repeating itself and just played out in this repressive era as it had in earlier eras. So uh, again, it's very much embedded in the past, but she, uh, she talks about how it created, uh, uh, in her words, a tolerance for impunity. And so the future, present and future project is ending that pattern. Right? ending that tolerance for impunity that's uh, deeply embedded in uh, national histories and cultures. La Sarra, uh, again, talks about, by the way, I'm going to sound like I don't like this chapter, but I really like how <laughs> I just found it really provocative. Uh, but La Sarra talks about radical justice. He says, quote, radical justice is always unfinished, which means not only is the, the notion of politics of memory uh, not only about the past, it means it's never, it never has an end. Um, there's no end to memory, no limit to memory, um, but the ch I think somebody refers to memory saturation, but there's very little uh, consideration about something that Elizabeth Hain talks about, memory fatigue. You know, at what point do you get to stop remembering? You know, societies, I mean, not individuals, but do societies uh, get to move on, get to, uh, to put this in the past. Um, there are lots of references to posts in the book, and I wanted to ask the authors, are we really in a post? When so much, are we in a post-transition, a post-memory, uh, or are we, you know, that there's some tension in the, in the uh, chapters that if it's present and if it's future, then what's post about this? Um, so thinking about that temporal dimension would be uh, useful, I think. Um, so here's the part that probably most memory scholars will hate about my comments, which is uh, political effectiveness or the impact of memory politics. Um, does memory work? Um, does it do politics in a way that's effective? Does it do everything that we expect of it? And how would we know if it did? Um, has memory won the battle over forgetting and silencing? Has it brought accountability? These are questions that are not clear. I don't think the chapters speak with one voice on this. On one hand, you might say the answer is yes, because um, in all of these countries, there are at least some trials, um, some very important trials in all three of the countries, more than some trials in in all three of the countries. It's partially, there's a partial eroding of cultures of impunity. 
But the answer is also no, because no one has been satisfied that Hillary now in any country. So has Hillary's memory failed? Or is that where we have this relationship between memory politics and institutional politics? Some would say that memory has won in the sense that now there are these markers of memory that couldn't have been there before. But on the other hand, uh, um, the memory lexicon, the memory politics have been picked up by groups that um, are subverting the political project that was once there. I don't, you know, are they powerful? Um, that's hard to know. Um, so I guess the question is, when is memory effective in this political project? Um, and will it always have the same degree of effectiveness if, if there is such a thing as boredom with memory, uh, fatigue, not boredom with your book, but more of <laughs> fatigue, memory fatigue, uh, memory saturation. The last point I was going to make is about um, memory and well-being. And um, this is really thinking about social memory, collective memory, um, political memory. And so it's not about the psycholo psychology of the individual, but it's about the health of society. So um, when... To what extent is the politics of memory healthy for societies, and when is it unhealthy? Uh, Cecilia has a, a quote uh, about talking about los rubios and a new generation of political memorialization that, as she says, as she and I'll quote her, laughs in mourning the uncanny pleasures of being plural in loss. Um, Vicky Bell and and others talk about. Uh, not focusing on the melancholy uh, of the past and sort of, in, in that sense, seem to be calling for a healthier <laughs> um, attitude about memory. Um, the book I, shares, uh, I share with the book a, a question, uh, maybe a skepticism about the notion of reconciliation as health and in favor of coexistence, um, but I just wonder, given the fragmented a nature of memory, the tensions over memory, the gatekeeping, mm. this tension between the sacred and the profane, whether even the coexistence claim um, can be achieved. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.